Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is the 30th episode of Shut Up and Wrestle, and talk about good conversations and great stories. For this special 30th episode, we really have the epitome of that, because my guest is none other than the legendary Kevin Sullivan himself. Um, this was awesome. Just want you to know that. And we're going to get to it in a minute. Uh, don't have a, a, a lot to talk about this week before that, but a couple of quick things I wanted to get to. And one is that um, as I'm recording this and as I'm prepping this to be posted on August 24th, I wanted to mention that I have coming up an appearance that I've been talking about at the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame weekend in Albany, New York. It's happening Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. That would be the 26th, 27th, and 28th. And I will be there on hand for the festivities. I'll be signing copies of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. And I will also have the honor of inducting the one and only Ricky Choshu, into the IPWHF. So that is going to be a pleasure, a privilege, and an honor. And I look forward to seeing anybody that turns out for that. So hopefully you can make it. Also want to say that um, it's about a month out now, maybe a little more. But next month, at the uh, last week of the month, really, the week of September 25th, I will be at the Cauliflower Alley Club reunion in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, I went last year for the first time. It was a lot of fun, a little quieter than usual because of the pandemic, hoping things loosen up a little bit this time. And I get to see more of my longtime friends and colleagues. I hope you will be coming out to that. Uh, even if you're not, I will be reporting on that. And of course, as always, I will be signing copies of, you guessed it, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. I will be in the merchandise room, or the gimmick room, as it's sometimes called in this crazy business, signing copies of my book. So once again, you can come on down and, and say hello. I would also be remiss if I did not mention... Uh, this week, as I'm, I'm, I finally feel free to talk about it because it's now been made public thanks to the announcement by Brian Last, the uh, major domo of the Arcadian Vanguard Network, that we are launching the Wrestling News, the daily news podcast of professional wrestling, and I am getting to be a part of it as the news editor. I'm honored and grateful to have been asked to be a part of this great team with Arcadian Vanguard, which also includes, of course, Mike Sempervivi, as well as Lou Kippelman, Jace Nakarado, and everybody at AV. And so um, this is going to be something very cool. It's going to be something unlike anything else happening in the wrestling media landscape right now. 
we are getting set to uh, get down to business and bring you uh, a, a wrestling news podcast that you can rely on and that you can be proud of. And um, there's a great bunch of people that are a part of this thing, and I'm humbled to be among them. So stay tuned as we continue along with that. Again, it is called The Wrestling News, which harkens back to the old wrestling news uh, magazines and periodicals of Norm Keitzer back in the day, which are, of course, now uh, owned by Arcadian Vanguard. So we are making use of that intellectual property and lots of other exciting uh, stuff coming down the pike from Arcadian Vanguard. So keep listening. Stay tuned. The wrestling news is coming your way. So that is something very, very cool. Uh, before I get to the Sullivan conversation, I also do want to mention very cryptically something I'm excited about and hopefully we'll be able to speak more about in the weeks to come. But um, I have been approached to take part in a an upcoming project on Vice TV, of course, the network that a lot of us know from Dark Side of the Ring and the upcoming Tales from the Territories TV series, and they've done some other wrestling content as well. The China documentary, which I was featured on very briefly, um, I will be appearing on another project soon to come on Vice. I will let you know a little bit more about what that is in the weeks to come, but it's going to be very interesting. Um, also very interesting, and I'd like to just kind of get to it now, is this um, interview that I did with Kevin Sullivan, who I originally interviewed a couple of years ago for the Sheik book. He had a lot of great recollections about working with and for the Sheik and idolizing the Sheik as well. And Kevin, of course, among many people, credit him as being probably the greatest heel in the history of pro wrestling. And we talked a little bit about that in the interview, uh, as well as the many places that he's worked. I, as people who listen to this show know, I like to kind of go off the beaten path with some of these conversations and get into things that maybe people don't always get a chance to talk about. Like, for example, when I had the Blue Meanie on, and we didn't really talk a whole lot about ECW. We talked about... Um, his fandom as a young kid uh, watching wrestling in the 80s and that kind of thing. And so with Kevin Sullivan, I spent a lot of time as well talking about his early career in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation in the 1970s um, when he was kind of just breaking in as a rookie and, and working his way up the card. It's a period of his career that I am fascinated by. And I was able to pick his brain on that, so which was amazing. And, and you're going to hear some very cool stuff, such as Kevin Sullivan, the future booker, kind of learning the ropes of booking um, at the side of Vince McMahon Sr. Um, in, a, in, in a locker room when he got caught kind of looking through the books, literally, by uh, Vince the Elder. A great anecdote that we got to and there's a lot of other great stuff in this interview so i really hope you enjoy it and i'm going to take you to it right now okay so it is my pleasure to welcome to shut up and wrestle truly one of the great wrestling performers and wrestling minds of the past 50 years somebody who's been everywhere who's done it all during the 70s the 80s the 90s uh, from championship wrestling in Florida to Georgia championship to Gulf Coast championship, San Francisco, Southwest championship, Central States, um, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, 
Crockett Promotions, WCW, ECW. And he's been a booker in in Florida, in Hawaii, very notably in WCW, among other places. Um, and he's also, I should mention, he's going to be honored later this year by the Cauliflower Alley Club. I'll be there. And that's definitely much deserved. Um, he is Cambridge, Massachusetts' favorite son and the Prince of Darkness himself, Kevin Sullivan. Thank you very much for the introduction. You've done your homework. <laughs> Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, I, I got to plug your book. Okay. He was a, the Sheik was a dear friend of mine. And the book really opened up. And I think the, the cover tells it all, the greatest tale of all times. Uh, <clears throat> I got to tell you a quick story about the first time I actually saw the Sheik. Sure. I uh, had wrestled amateur for 10 years. And when I was a kid, <clears throat> Paul Bowser was the, he was like the precursor to Vince. I don't know if a lot of people know this. He he owned all of New England. He placed his guys in Montreal and Toronto. He owned a small piece of uh, New York with Vince and Toots. Mont. He had part of Chicago. Right, uh, and then he had, you know, he worked with Al Haft. He he had a special dispensation from the NWA because he had his own world champion, Killer Kowalski, and he he actually had uh, sent his guys all over the country, probably all over the world, and they they he had L.A. He had San Francisco. So, I mean, this guy was a really powerful guy to get that special dispensation. And also for a really long time, too. Bowser was operating for like 50 years or something. Yeah, he, he really was. The funny thing was, later on, my parents moved to Lexington. There were two streets from his big horse farm. So uh, he was dead at the time. But uh, he was... Uh, like I said, one of the most powerful guys in wrestling. So when I was watching him back, his program back then, you know, I was very, very young and I really enjoyed it. And I, my dad took me to the matches a couple of times. Then as I got into amateur wrestling, kind of went by the wayside. But the Sheik came into town to Boston. And I believe it was Ferris Ariad. They were getting ready for the angle with Bruno. Mm-hmm. And when he came, and I went with a friend of mine that was a Sheik fan and talked me into going. Now, I'm watching the matches, and I know you can't bail a guy by his hair and pull him down by his tights and all that. But when he came out of the dress room and started to make his way to the ring, I think the building moved, the energy. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he did it like in your book, it says his three minute blood and thunder, complete mayhem. And I said to my friend, I said, I, I don't think all this is real, but that guy's real. That's how my first introduction to him. Then I go fast forward um, in Georgia Championship Wrestling. And this is when we started to go out into. West Virginia, Ohio, Michigan. We had just started. And 
he was running in, I believe it was uh, Huntington, West Virginia. And Jim Barnett would send him some talent. And he requested me. And what was crazy about it was I had heard, you know, Jim told me, well, you can do a job for him and blah, blah, blah. Don't cut yourself up too much. <laughs> and I got there. And he brought me into the dressing room, just talked to me a little while. He said, hey, I'm going to try to get you back. We'll work a double DQ, and you grab my belt and take it and run to Babyface dressing room. I thought, wow, this doesn't happen much. After that, I never went back because then we made the full court press right. into Ohio and cut him off, like you say in the book. And... Uh, <laughs> Then later on, in 1986, I was booking in Florida, and a, a guy that I brought in there, who was very intelligent, college-educated, got to Hero in uh, Duke Kiyomoka, and they said, because at that time, Angelo Savoli had his tapes in all our major towns. And they were scared he was going to run against us. So I said, I know Angelo, I'll give him a call. And what I did was I'd send our angles, and he put it on his TV. Then he asked for some of the guys. So me, Mark Lewin, Blackjack, uh, Barry, I took a, a, a few guys up there. So he talked to the guys and said, he's trying to steal your territory. Well, I'm supposed to wrestle Barry Windham in Tampa for the main event on a Tuesday night. The Saturday before, I'm wrestling his younger brother, Kendall. And they come to me and said, we want you to put Kendall over. And I said, you guys are going to find me after this, right? And they said, no, 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 no. So you know what happened. Me and Mark put him over. But Kendall weighed about 180 pounds, and I was 250 at the time, and Mark was... 300 pounds of muscle. Right. So I said, we're going to put him over right. I said, I'll give up on a figure four. And I had like 36 inch thighs left. And I had Kendall put me in the figure four. I had Mark roll in, go to stomp him, and he small package Mark. And he beat both of us. I come back in the dressing room and I say, you're fired. So they kind of set the word out. Mm. Two territories left. Well, he you know, we fired him, he was our booker, but he was going to try to take the territory and all this, which I wasn't. And I'm sitting at home, and I'm thinking, well, I've called a few places. I called the Fullers, and they said, oh, yeah, we'll bring in, but it's going to be a few months. And I thought, well, at least someone's not buying this bullshit. I was sitting there one morning, and I get a call. And the voice says, zip, zip, this is the sheik, this is the sheik. I heard what they did to you. They did that to me, too. He said, I'm going to bring you to Ontario for the summer. I said, okay, uh, how are we going to do money-wise? He said, this back in 86. He said, I'll give you seventeen fifty a week. He said, I'll pay for all your transportation. I'll pay your food and back tap. And he was a man of his word. I never got shorted, but 
during that time, it was the bad man, which he talked about in the book, and they started a draw. Sabu was breaking in. Uh, I probably had either his second or third match. Mark, I think, had his first. He had, the Sheik hadn't been to these small towns in years. But in your book, it brought something out that I didn't know, that sometimes they work with Dave at the Ontario office, right, Toronto, and then other times they cut him off, and they didn't even let the Sheik go over there. Right. Yeah, it was like a love-hate relationship that they had with the Tunney office. Yeah, so uh, he was really good to me, and he's baby. And then the, the Toronto office, the Tunney office, like you said, opened up the little towns against us. And they were on TV, Michigan, the Dave worked. So it started to get, crowds started to get going down. Right. They they were okay with the McKigney group as long as they didn't see them as a threat. Once they right. started doing well, then they kind of thought, well, we got to squash this. Right. And as the towns went down, I went to them one night and I said, hey, Zip, you can't pay me this kind of money because I know he's coming out of your pocket. He said, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'm a sheep. You captured it so well. And, you know, I said, no, I, I got to go. So he said, no, no, stay the rest of the week. He said, I actually want you to stay through the summer. I said, okay. And then the, the next night was a complete disaster. It was like from a town that he was drawing 3,000 people, it was down to like 200 because mm -hmm. they ran against us that night. And I finally went to him and I said, listen, I can't take this money. I can't do it. You can't afford it. And you're, getting, you're doing well now. Hopefully things will turn for you everywhere, but I'm out. He said, no, no, no. I said, no, I'm out. <clears throat> so as I go to leave that night, he gives me an envelope and he said, this is for the week. And he said, there's three more weeks in the envelope. He said, I really appreciate what you did. So, I mean, I had heard the horror stories uh, that you captured so well. Dad, someone stole the money at the box office. Mm. And I had heard, you know, the Bruno thing where Bruno went in, he was supposed to get, did you say $1,000? And he paid like 700 they yeah. The bruiser. Yeah. Yeah. He he went to work on the other side of the war. Yeah. Because he got, it was worse than that. I think he was promised maybe 2000 and he got like 700 or something like that. And yeah, he was pissed. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, at this time of his life, I don't think he was making clear decisions. I mean, if you're going to shortchange anybody, you don't shortchange Bruno San Martino. Right. Especially when you're in the middle of a war and you need his help so badly. And not only that, but I mean, they drew probably the biggest crowd that Kobo Arena ever saw the night that Bruno came to Kobo. And still, he still shortchanged him. <laughs> yeah. Which was, you know, and by this time, he, you know, as you, I keep on 
say this, but as you put over the book, he actually thought he was the sheik from the day he probably got in the ring, or even before that. But he was thinking he was bigger than Bruno at this time, and it didn't matter. Well, that was a huge mistake in that walk. I think it gave uh, Bruiser a few more months, or maybe four or five more months. What do you think? Yeah, you know, the the funny thing with Bruiser and that war, you know, for people that don't know that are listening, there was, and I mentioned it in the book, there was a war, a territory war between Dick the Bruiser and the Sheik that went on for about two years or so. And a big reason why is because the Bruiser just would not leave. That's the thing. Like, he kept, uh, he kept running and running. And I think he was partly being bankrolled by... Um, the guy who who owned uh, um, the the um, Olympia Stadium, Lincoln Cavalieri, I think, because he wanted to run against Kobo. And so he had a lot of money to put into this thing. And no matter how, because the Sheik always had a foothold in that war. He always was, right. was, was drawing slightly better, always. But the Bruiser just would not give up. A lot of other people would have just said, "Well, I'm not going to get anywhere here. I'm going to, I'm going to get, I'm going to stop this." And he just kept going and going. And and yeah, I mean, having people like Bruno, and then he would bring in the Crusher, and they would reunite, you know, Bruiser and Crusher, and things like that. And he he was he was holding his own for a while. Yeah. Uh, but you yeah. had you had an interesting. Uh, whole relationship with the Sheik. It's it's fascinating to me. That's why I wanted to talk to you when I was writing the book because you went from just being somebody in the crowd watching this guy and recognizing there was something special about him and, and you're just a kid, you know, and then he's one of your closest friends in the business. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it, 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 it was. And uh, then when I went to Ontario, I got to see the softer side of him he was uh we always talk about his uh granddaughter susie susie says susie grandpa shiki give me five dollars give me five dollars and he'd laugh you know he she was the apple of his eye and he was in good spirits at the time you know and then when i got to be in somewhat positions to not help him out to show people that he could still draw if you didn't overdo it. I got a chance to bring him to Hawaii and I got a chance to bring him to ECW. I got a chance to uh, bring him to Florida. And and then later on, as you put it out in the book, the only time I was ever in a double turn match was me and Murdoch against the Sheik and Dusty. And I had to get him there on a bet. I got a bet Dusty 500 bucks so draw over 100 grand. And nobody thought we were going to do that money. But he did it. He came back. And then, you know, he came back as a baby face. People out of the styles were cheering for him. But when he turned heel on Dusty and I turned on Murdoch, the people blew because they remember him and he brought them back memories. And you're talking about now when when they brought the Great American Bash to Detroit in, in 88. Right. And right. at that point, 1988, I mean, he hadn't even set foot in Cobo Arena for maybe about seven, eight years. I didn't. I, I realized that when I read your book. But yeah. I didn't realize it at that time. 
and um, Cornette mentioned, and you could confirm it. <laughs> I was there. I know where you're going. Don't yeah, he showed. I saw it my own eyes. Right where he he basically showed up in his limo, pulled into the arena through the back door while the first match was in progress, right? Right. You're absolutely right. And where everybody's eyes were just immediately on him, he gets out of the limo and he's in his three-piece suit and he's got his attendants and everything. And, and, and it's like the entire crowd just stopped watching the opening match and, and just, which is exactly, I think, what he wanted, right? Oh, absolutely. He comes out with a three-piece suit on, you know, the vest, but no shirt, the gold dripping off of his neck, his hands. I mean, the whole building turned. And the funny thing is, and you got it dead on, and I'm sure you got it from Cornette. Cornette and uh, uh, Fulton came out, and they were like two little kids peeking around the corner when he pulled up. I thought they were going to piss their pants in delight. <laughs> oh, oh, look at it's the sheep, it's the sheep. They were running around. They uh, they would have drove out of the Kobo as a chauffeur or bodyguard if he wanted them to do it. It was an amazing, amazing entrance. But but then he made another one of those kind of yeah. bad, bad decisions where he, you know, they he could have made some money with Crockett and he just he he asked for too much, I guess. He wanted uh, his usual 10% of the gate, and he refused to come back for the return match, and he kind of shot himself in the foot again. Yeah, and when that, when they drew, and they saw what they were going to do, Dusty, you know, was a genius. He said, switch partners during the match, and he said, we'll come back in a tag. We'll protect the Sheik. And he said, we can work a few matches. And, he, and then I said to him, <clears throat> you know, L.A. was a big place for him. And we had just started going to L.A. And we had bus to that market open. I said, what about L.A.? He said, yeah, L.A. He, he said, when we go to Florida, I think, you know, he was a big car there. He said, maybe I'll bring him to Florida. So... You're absolutely right. Him wanting to be the sheik all the time. If he had taken the money and he could have worked out a deal with them to save face if that's what he was wanting to do. Where they would have maybe not given him 10%, but they would work something out. And he he didn't see that his time was rapidly coming to an end. And his time was coming to a, an end. You put it in so eloquently. The guys from the 50s off that national TV out of Chicago with uh, Lenny Schwartz's TV and the, uh, Fred Kohler. Fred Kohler. Yeah. They had two TVs and he was the last guy left of his generation. And he could have. He was being the sheik to the very end and to his own detriment. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, like in the book, I had that story too of where, which I couldn't confirm if it really happened or not, but where he, people said that he actually had a meeting with Vince when Vince came to Detroit for the first time. And, 
He may have been offered a spot in the company, but uh, again, supposedly, according to the story, he was being very unrealistic. You know, he was asking to keep running Detroit. Basically, he wanted to run Detroit and use WWF guys and and still wrestle and all this kind of thing. And it was just it was not something that was going to be practical or be able to be done. And and, you know, because, the, look, there were a lot of older guys from the older generation that were making deals with Vince and they were doing things for his company, maybe not even on television, but even behind the scenes. And I think she could have been one of those people if he had played his cards right. Yeah, uh, I think you're hit on the head. He could have been one of those guys, especially in that Ohio, Michigan, Toronto area. You know what I mean? He could still not talk to me. I put him with one of his old badges, Greekspin or the Grand Wizard or, or somebody just to be a, a front guy, he didn't even have to wrestle. I, he was the sheik. I can ask you a question. Yeah. I don't think I saw it in the book. I had heard this from the sheik, but I also heard it from other guys. One of those, Mark Lord. When Vince lost TV for a while in the uh, Vince Sr., yeah. and the territory kind of went down. She told me that he lent Vince $250,000 $500,000, and that's why they brought him in to wrestle Bruno to off the territory. Is there any truth in that well, story? He, you know, he would say a lot of things like that, so it, it's hard yeah. to, to break through the, the bullshit. But I know that what I heard was, I, you know, I never heard of an amount like that. I would be surprised if that was true, but I did hear that he came in. So so Sheik had originally worked for Vince Sr. when he was still a mid-card guy, like in the late 50s, and he was doing, uh, he was a tag team with Bull Curry, and he, he wasn't really a top guy yet, but then... 10 years later, now he's one of the biggest stars in the business in the late 60s, and Bruno's the WWF champion. And I think that they were hurting, like you said, the, the, the Vince had lost TV, or and I think they wound up getting stuck on Spanish TV for a while, too. So they, they had a, in the New York market, so they had a limited reach, and the houses were hurting. And I think what Sheik did was he offered to basically come in and work for free and to do it as a favor, which was almost like, if you think about it, it's almost like giving the money because if he's working for free, right, right. he's not taking the money, but, and, and he helped them. Now, you know, it's a little bit of an exaggeration because here's the thing. Um, as I heard from um, Sheik's son, Eddie Jr. was talking about this. And he said that all the houses were down. Now, the garden was not down. The garden was still on fire with Bruno. Even, even when TV was hurting, the garden was doing okay. It was all the other houses that were hurting. Boston, Philadelphia, right. Baltimore. And those houses came up when the Sheik came in. Because the Sheik did the typical, he did like the three-month program at the garden with Bruno. And then they took it all around the horn. And basically, the story was that he did that just as a favor, you know, just to help out. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny about that because when I was living in Boston, there was three papers, the Herald, the Wrecking American, and the Globe. 
you know, I don't know how many Pulitzer Prizes the Globe has won, but probably sink a ship. They would have uh, results uh, in, in in the Globe. It would just tell you who, who won and the number of people there. The Record American, which was a Hearst newspaper, would give a little bit more, maybe a picture and stuff like this. The Herald kind of was followed what the Globe did. But I remember the, the build-up, the first time the sheep came into Boston or Russell Bruno was they wrote a, a quarter-page article, and that was unheard of for the Globe. And the Wrecking American had like a half-page uh, article about that. This was the first time I ever heard about backstage angles, right? That uh, they played it up that the Sheik and Bruno got in a fight in the dress room and that the Sheik broke Bruno's nose. And I mean, I don't know who was the instrument to get that for the globe to do that. Right. But, but it had to be a, an old friend of his or, or somebody paid it. But it was pretty amazing for me when I was a kid looking at results and stuff. And then here's this whole page talking about this angle they did. And I think it helped the houses. But I think that he grew up in that generation where newspapers were still being kind to wrestling. And he must have made a lot of friends. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I mean, usually, because believe me, I've looked at a lot of old, you know, films and records of newspapers. <laughs> and and it looks like it's by, by about the early 70s is when the newspapers, the big newspapers start to ab abandon wrestling. And they just have the little box score and there's no write-up or anything. Because I know in New York, we had the New York Daily News they would they would they would cover it but even the New York Times the New York Times used to uh when when Bruno lost the title to Ivan Koloff there was a write up in the New York Times sports section which would be unbelievable today you know something like that but i think that was right around the turning point but you're right they probably knew somebody in the in the newspaper office there was probably cuz i wasn't uh so in boston at that time i think abe ford was the promoter for vince mcmahon yes. so there must have been uh, some kind of connection there where they knew somebody and they were able to get some publicity you know, in the newspaper, because and the newspapers would kind of hold their nose and and run that kind of stuff, because they knew that there was a segment of the readership that wanted to read it. Right. I'm going to have a sidebar with you. Please do. Okay. With you checking everything and being so thorough, I never understood. I heard a lot of stuff when I got in the business. Abe Ford was a, am I right? Was he a local promoter, not just wrestling, but a bunch of stuff? Yeah. Oh, you know, he was like a lot of those guys back then. They would promote concerts, they would promote, right. you know, various events and things, and wrestling was part of what they did. And then he was gone and Vince took it away from him. I had heard 
that the Bashans, when they started their company, came down and wanted to buy him out. And you wanted to sell it. Oh, from Vince. Do you, was there any truth to that? Yeah, there was apparently some type of a behind-the-scenes intrigue that happened. And I'm trying to, off the top of my head, I it, the Vashans are involved. And I think what happened was, and when people hear this, they could correct me if I get the details wrong. But I think Abe Ford was looking to, um, like you said, maybe sell interest in Boston to the Vashans because they were running up in Canada. And I think the Vashans went to Vince and told him what was happening. So uh, the Vashans kind of had a thought of like, well, where should our loyalty lie here? Who's going to benefit us more? Do we want to cross Vince McMahon and sell to, you know, and, and you know, buy from Abe Ford? Or do we want to tell Vince McMahon what's going on and stay loyal to him? And they decided to do that. They thought it would be wiser because Abe Ford was not as nearly as powerful as Vince. He was just he was just a local promoter. So so once Vince Senior found out that Abe Ford was basically trying to double cross him, he he pushed him out and of Boston. And and a couple of weird things happened. So all of a sudden, Paul and Maurice Vachon. They get a few dates at Madison Square Garden, which I guess was part of the deal. They got to come to New York and wrestle there. And then um, Abe Ford is out of Boston. And I think what happens is um, uh, Ernie Roth starts running it for Vince, the Grand Wizard. And he has uh, his partner with him, Bobby Harmon. Right. And then I think Vince Jr., who was just starting out, he was, you know, in his 20s, um, he got his feet wet helping Roth and Harmon to run the Boston area after Abe Ford got pushed out. Yeah, uh, I think you have it completely correct. And I'll tell you about the Boston area. At that time, they were running the Boston area, the New England area, quite a bit. So part of the guys lived in Boston. I moved back to Boston because Vincini was nice enough that there's two towns running. He'd, he usually booked me in the one I was going to get a better payoff, but if it was close and it was only going to be a few dollars more, I'd go to him and say, I'm not bitching, Vince, but uh, this is only 20 minutes from my house. The other one's 250 miles each way. Uh, do you think I can get on that guy instead? And he would do it for me. But they got really, they ran... Uh, not Attleboro, Massachusetts, ran for 50 years every Friday night. Jack Witchie's Arena? Yes. Yeah. And they were running Waltham, which, uh, if my history is right, that was a kind of like a spot show for Paul Bowser, but he ran it like six or eight times a year. And then they went to Fitchburg, they went to uh, all of Maine, Augusta, Lewiston, uh, Portland. They went to New Hampshire, uh, Nashua during the summertime. And that, those are all towns that Vinny and the Grand Wizard of Bobby had. 
and they were making a lot of money on pictures. They were selling pictures of the guys. So I think eventually that Vince Jr. squeezed them out of some of the towns in New Hampshire, like Manchester. I think they squeezed them out of Portland and uh, the Cape for sure. But uh, yeah, that was always, I always wondered if those stories about 84 were true. So obviously there's a, breath of truth of that whole story yeah and that's interesting to me too because i know that when when vince jr was kind of starting his own company when he started titan sports even before he had before he bought his father out and and when he started his own company he was running it out of the cape cod coliseum that's where the offices were so i'm talking about like back in about 1980 or so so i'm wondering if that was partly because he had so much background and experience in Massachusetts that he he set up shop in 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 Massachusetts. I also heard that he had bought the Cape Cod Coliseum. Right, that might be part of it too, because that's back when he was doing like he was promoting Evil Knievel and he was doing rock concerts and things and a little bit of boxing. You know, and and he was basically building up enough capital to eventually go and try and buy out his father and the partners, Skolan, Monsoon, and Phil Zacco, and those guys. Which it took him about it took him a couple of years to build up to that. Pretty amazing, huh? Yeah, it's pretty wild. And and I like you know, it's it's interesting to me to talk to you about this because you you know. The, that part of your career, working for Vince Senior and the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, it doesn't get talked about a lot or enough because you know those were your very early years and formative years, and 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 the stuff you did later on with you know um, the Prince of Darkness and Florida and and all the stuff in Crockett and the Varsity Club and on and on and on, it, it overshadowed that because it was you know you were a, a much bigger uh attraction in those years but i always find it interesting that you you started out in your earliest years working for the mcmahons yeah and uh he put me in a great spot i was the guy that was a stepping stone to get to bruno and if there was a if andre was in he put me with andre in a tag match so i would sell for andre I never realized how much I was Andre's partner up there until someone had some results and showed them. I, I mean, uh, he I, he was so good to me, the old man. I'll give you a quick story. You know, the original Rocky was where it was supposed to be Vicky's gym. Yeah, that was where we did TV. Oh, okay. So, when you walk in the dressing rooms, and I just watched the Rocky Marathon the other day, and it brought me back because he's in the, those bathrooms, and that's where the dressing room was. I didn't, I never in, knew that was the same place, huh? Yeah. And when you walked into that door to go into the dressing room, there was a long wooden table. And Vince sat there with his bifocals in front of the monitor. And all his cronies who you mentioned 
were around them. And Albano was there to uh, count them off. Zacco, uh, Monsoon, uh, Skolan, they're all there, you know, jockeying for physician. <laughs> and he had his book out one day. So I had gotten there early. I don't know what to, I think I took a train here that day at Amtrak. And I could just get off and walk to the building. So they're all there. And I was the first guy in there. And they all get up to go get something to eat. So I either was crazy or had a lot of cojones. I said, I want to take a look at this book. Well, I opened up this book. And the major towns, the ones you mentioned, Philly, Boston, Providence, uh, and a host of others. I looked at this book, and the top three matches, the matches that Bruno had, the tag team match for the titles, and the guy they were getting ready beyond the third go-round. The third batch from the top. Right. Now, the other, the other ones were kind of penciled in to get the local guys, or maybe you bring in a Piper, or Flair, or a Briscoe, because the Florida TV was there, and the California TV got to New York for a while. I believe. So Yeah, yeah, it did. I'm, I'm looking at this, and I'm scanning it in my head, and... It was in the summertime, probably June. And I'm looking at his book. And he's got it booked all the way out to the end of the year. Those three matches. So, all of a sudden, my nose is in the book. They all walk in together. <laughs> he looks at me and says, what are you doing? I said, I was looking at this to see how you did it. I hope you don't mind. He said, why, are you interested in it? I said, yeah. I said, well, sit with me on this show. They're not on until, like, the third tape. Well, I'll show you how I kind of do it. But you talk about a guy that was prepared, and I said to him, what happens if something cha changes? He said, you know, when I got that third batch, the guy that's going to wrestle Bruno, he said, I have another heel earlier. That's squashing guys. I said, why do you do that? He said, because it could be an injury. The guy could walk out on me. He could flake out. I got a safety valve. And I thought, back then, guys were doing the matches the week before and had no safety valves. I don't think he gets enough credit. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> How good a booker he was. I think you're right. You know, I hear all the stories about, well, there were 20 million people in New York City, whatever the figure is. Yeah, but there were 20 million wrestling fans. So what he drew, I don't buy that <clears throat> completely that it was because it was such a huge populace. And the other thing, he was smart enough to change gears <clears throat> because he had Bruno, ethnic, P 
Pedro Essek. And then he went completely the other way for Bob Ack. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was a big break for him. <clears throat> yeah, and it was, uh, it was a big, what's the word I'm looking for? It was a big, not just chance, but you had to buy into that this was going to work. Work and he did it because wasn't background on TV for over a year before he made our show. That's right. It was a year buildup of him just winning and winning and winning and gradually getting more and more support. In fact, I think Backlund was already starting that process before Superstar even won the belt from Bruno. I think they had already started building up Backlund. I think you're right. I think uh, he was going up. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think he was going up from Florida at the time. Yeah, yeah. That's probably how he got him because I mean Vince and Eddie Graham were so so close. Right, right. But he and the oh, go on, go on. No, go on. No, I was going to say, you know, you mentioned well two things. First of all, I think um, the booking of Vince McMahon Senior. You're right; it doesn't get talked about enough. It's like before Vince Jr. took over, it's almost like it's never really discussed who was doing the booking in the territory before that, you know, but it was really him. I mean, he was very much the same way that his son became, whereas he was the last word. He wasn't just the promoter. He was booking the whole thing and he was very organized and knew what he what he wanted way in advance. And, and also with the ethnic stuff, I have to imagine that that's probably another part of the reason of why he liked using you too, because you've got big Irish populations in, in Boston and New York and play, you know, all through new England. So he, he, he has a guy named Kevin Sullivan. I mean, that's perfect, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you a funny story. During the first time they were having the runoff of the Chicago TV and they were using was it the uh, heavyweights from, was it Connecticut heavyweight championship wrestling? Yeah, heavyweight heavyweight wrestling. They were. I know they were doing it out of DC, but then they also started doing it out of Bridgeport. Yeah, and then they were sending those tapes to Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Well, at this time, Vince was really learning the ins and outs of the business, and he had the Grams there, and Eddie would give Jerry the direction, and Jerry, being Vince's favorite. We're giving these ideas. And Vince thought Jerry was the genius until he caught Eddie giving a bunch of finishes to Jerry. That's why they became so close because I'd be up in the office and it was not uncommon for Vince to call Eddie to say, uh, I got this match and I had three matches before, uh, the sheep came in. Uh, how do you think I should do it? Well, you got an idea. And they would talk back and forth on the phone. And that was in the office. I'm sure they talked back and forth at home quite a bit. So yeah. he absorbed a lot, Vince. And you're right. I don't think people give him enough credit as a booker. And... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, it, it was a formula. And I know sometimes people will criticize it, saying it was the same formula. And but it worked. I mean, how could you argue with it if it works? Yeah, and 
I think those guys from that generation had that formula. Uh, you go back to San Francisco, which I used to go over, and Stevens was the big star. It was three matches. You know, first one stopped for blood. The second one, <clears throat> no stopping for blood. And there'd be a double DQ, and then they go into the cage. Right, and, and Stevens was kind of like the West Coast uh, equivalent of Bruno. Right, right, right. In fact, didn't Bruno... <clears throat> Sorry, I guess I'm coughing. No, it's okay. Did, didn't Bruno actually go out there and work with Stevens? Yeah, he did, and they had that controversial finish where basically... Right. They had an out because I guess in San Francisco, they had a rule where a title could change on a count out. Right. And, and of course, in New York, that's not the case. So they were able to make everybody happy where basically Stevens won it on a count out. They put the belt on him, but then they wound up reversing it and saying, well, you can't win the WWF title on a count out. So it goes back to Bruno. So it was like a way of placating everybody. Right, and the other thing, uh, when I listen to Bruno talk, he always talks about Ray Stevens being the greatest worker he was ever in the ring with. So I think we all have our heroes, and I think Ray was Bruno's hero. Ray was an easy guy to get along with, a very nice man. And uh, I see that here, Bruno, because he's deserving it. Yeah, Ray Stevens is an interesting figure because it's like when you when you talk to people of that generation, you know, like if you talk to young wrestlers today, they might mention that a lot of the name that will come up will be Shawn Michaels, you know, as somebody that they all looked up to. And then if you go a little bit further back, they'll talk about flair and things like that. And there's a certain generation of wrestlers where if you mention, you know, Ray Stevens, they'll always say he was the greatest. Well, I went to San Francisco, and I had the unenviable job replacing Ray. And we shot an ad with my father, and we started drawing some big houses. So they they came, Ray came in for a show to be my partner. And I was a young boy at the time, and I said, at one point, I said, Mr. Stevens, uh, how do you... When do you want me to give you the hot tag so you can do the bomb's way? He said, Kid, this is your town now. I'm going to do the song. You make the comeback. He didn't have to do that. This is Ray Stevens, who owned San Francisco. Right. He was a very nice man. And I've never heard anybody say a cross word about him. That's unusual, as you know, in the business. That's true. And he also had the great tag team with Pat Patterson, maybe one of the best tag teams ever. I put them in the top three. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think one of the things that, that hurts them is, you know, there's not a lot, especially for younger fans, there's not a lot of footage around where you can watch them, you know. But for people that were around, they'll always say that they might have been the best or very close to the best. I I, I can't disagree with that statement, that's for sure. But, uh, you know, and I, and I wanted to ask you, too, before we, especially before we run out of time, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. It's crazy. But, 
you know, one person that came up in the conversation and uh, I we talked about him when we were talking about when I was interviewing you for the Sheik book is Mark Lewin, because he's somebody that was around for so long. And I know you guys were close and you worked together a lot. And then he just kind of vanished from the business um, at a certain point when he had been around since the 50s. Was it just a case where he was getting too, he just felt like he was getting too old or no. or was there another reason? There was another reason. As you know, Mark spent a lot of time in Asia, uh, New Zealand, and uh, Australia made nothing but money. Uh, Singapore. And Mark ended up marrying into the royal family of Singapore. Uh, I, you know, it's up, when these royal families, it's like an upside down funnel. The closer you are to the top, the more money you make. Right. But he, he, he lives in Singapore uh, probably eight months out of the year. Huh. He comes, yeah, he comes to the States four months. He's a very interesting guy. I mean, he, he was one of the smartest guys I was ever around. At 50 years old, he was in good a shape as anybody in the business. He, uh, he was an all-around cowboy. He was a great, one of the greatest swimmers I've ever seen. Great scuba diver. As he used to say, I've run all water out of my socks that people have seen. Uh, but he drew money since he was 16 years old when he was Rockers Park. Yeah, and... And I know I've even heard him talk about how Vince Sr. loved him so much and called him, you know, the one of the best baby faces he ever had. He was just uh, this the very, very likable kid. Yeah. I think he got sideways with Vince. Uh, back in those days, as you know, the guys used to panic if anybody ran opposition. Yeah, and didn't you have in your book where you talked about Lewin running opposition to the Sheik? He did, yeah, and he was another guy. He was close to the Sheik, but then he he just walked out and tried to run against him. Yeah, and uh, at that period, I think Vince had to make a decision: Am I going to go with Eddie, or am I going to go with Mark? Because there was rumors, you don't. Uh, this is something I another sidebar. <clears throat> when uh, Rocca went opposition to Vince, there was rumors that Mark was going to go there. But wasn't Rocca backed by uh, a Crockett, Jim Crockett Senior? Yeah, that's what that's what the operation was. Where Rocca, I guess, felt uh jilted because bruno was now coming up and and also buddy rogers was drawing really well in new york and so rocka went with big jim crockett senior and they were they did a couple of things you know i know you know rocka was the main event a lot of people don't realize this rocka was the main event at the very first show ever held at the greensboro coliseum which is like the heart of the crockett territory and then and then they were using Rocca. They were running Crockett, started running shows from the Sunnyside Gardens in Queens, 
which was right across the water from Madison Square Garden, about as close as you could get. But it didn't work. I think they, they even had television. They had television. I think the, the show was called something like, you know, Wrestling with Antonino Rocca, like his name was in the title of the show. And it still didn't do well. And and Rocca kind of just became sort of irrelevant after that. He, he he eventually came back to Vince and they made him an announcer and everything, but he was never a, a, a major star after that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I, guys that were around that told me that Ray Montana was the number one heel. Is that true? You mean for, for when they were for the, the Sunnyside Garden shows? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I think he was part of that, but they were also bringing in some of their own people. So it's it's weird. You would see these these people that are associated with Crockett, like um, George Becker and and Johnny Weaver and those kind of guys. And here they are wrestling in the Sunnyside Gardens in Queens. So it was partly Crockett using his own boys from the Carolinas and and basically resting everything on Raka as a draw, which I think they overestimated because by that point he had already been around for 12, 15 years. So, you know, I think it was kind of winding down a little bit, especially without Madison Square Garden. So they it didn't really it didn't really work out. But the Lewin thing was, you know, they were that was um backed by Bobby Davis, who was another person that had a long history with Vince Sr. Bobby Davis, the former manager, was the one who was trying to run opposition against the Sheik in Ohio. And I forget what they called it. I think it was called Wrestling Classics because I talked to Bobby right before he died. And he said that Mark Lewin was one of the people that he recruited because, of course, Lewin was one of the top guys in Detroit, too. So he right. so he recruited Mark, and there were a few other people that came over and he said he told me this crazy story. He said they were doing okay. They actually got, they actually pushed Sheik off a of TV in in some towns like Dayton and in Cincinnati and places. And then they had a match where they put an untrained guy in the ring. He was a fan, and he, but he had you know he had been a wrestler, an amateur wrestler, and he was an athlete, and he had a lot of money. So I guess maybe he paid to appear. And he had no professional training and he was the middle-aged guy and he wound up dying. He died in the ring and wow. um, they got in obviously a lot of trouble and it killed the whole promotion. That's the story Bobby Davis told me. Wow. And for Crockett to go into New York, was that because they had a boundary dispute over Baltimore? <laughs> You know, I don't know the motivation of why Crockett would want to do that other than just, you know, that there were a lot of guys that were trying to to do those kind of things back then. It was very cutthroat. But I know that they wanted to run Madison Square Garden. They were actually talking about bringing Rocca back to the garden under Crockett. And of course, um mcmahon was not going to allow that to happen in fact he was he was angry enough that they were running in queens and he tried to raise a fuss i guess with the athletic commission and the athletic commission in new york their hands were tied because you can't at least uh, not officially you can't block somebody from running 
competition, you know, it's against the law. I mean, obviously in pro wrestling, there's ways to do that behind the scenes, but you can't, but the athletic commission was not willing to prevent them from running. They, they were able to keep them out of the garden, but not out of the city. They were running in, in the outer boroughs. And, you know, I don't know why other than just that he felt with Raka, he had a chance to do it, you know, cause Raka was pissed at Vince. So he was looking to get back at him in some way. And I, my assumption is that all he had to do was find a promoter that was willing to back him. I think it was more, I don't think it was that Crockett had an issue with Vince. I think it was that Raka had an issue with Vince and he just was looking for the right promoter that would, that would back him, you know? Yeah. Right. I think you, you hit it on the head that Rocker thought he could go in and draw by on his name and Crockett did too. Yeah, but by then it was too late. It was already, you know, Bruno was on the way up and I think, it, you know, I, I think he might have even been the champion at that time. So there was no way they were going to succeed doing that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And money, like you said earlier, was drawing big money too, right? Yeah, he had about a two-year run where he he could do no wrong. They were They were selling out, and that was also the era where, you know, you have Rodgers as the NWA champion, and... Vince is kind of Vince and Tutsman, they're kind of uh, Buddy's sponsor, and they won't let him take dates anywhere else. And so you've got the rest of the NWA promoters, you know, throwing a fit saying, well, we need him, you know, in Texas, we need him in Illinois, we need him in, in North Dakota, you know, what are you, what are you doing? And they were keeping him confined to the Northeast a lot. And that, that led to the formation of the, you know, Worldwide Wrestling Federation. Yeah, you're right on. And I remember Terry Funk told me that because Buddy hadn't appeared and Senior didn't like him anyway, that they made their own world champion up there. And I think the first one was Gene Kanitsky. Yeah, you mean, do you mean in the... In the oh, oh, right. Oh, down in Amarillo. Yeah, they, you know, that, that started happening everywhere, really, because... The, over the years, it, I mean, it was so hard to hold the NWA together. That's why everything I read about, whenever I read about Sam Muchnick, it's always his whole job was just constantly putting out fires and making sure everybody got along and keeping everybody on the same page because the idea of having only one world champion it was not easy for everybody because they everybody wanted dates on the champion. So it was hard to keep everybody happy, very hard. Very hard to beat. And uh, <clears throat> if you are in that alliance, you want to have the champion come through a couple of times, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. no matter where you were, you know, everybody at least got to have the champion come through a few times a year. But when you, when you look at Buddy Rogers' schedule, you know, there was a great book about him that just came out by Tim Hornbaker. It was a really great biography where – you know, Rogers was he was traveling, but not nearly as much as the other NWA champions traveled like Fez and, and O'Connor and those guys where they really went everywhere with Rogers. It was, you know, about half of his time, maybe more than half was spent in the Northeast. And that just wasn't going to fly. Right. Right. The business is so. uh 
interesting, the mysteries, uh, skullduggery. It's really fascinating. And uh, I can see how much work you had to do in this book, looking at old tapes, old newspapers. But the behind the scenes were probably at that time more fascinating than what's happened in the ring, don't you think? Oh, it's true. I, I think that's the case most of the time with wrestling, and that's not uh, meant to be an insult to it. But I think the behind the scenes is so fascinating you know of why things were done and why they happened and like you said i mean the the research for a book is is so much more work and takes so much more time than even the writing of the book you know and so i mean i so i again if i didn't the first time i have to i I thank you for uh giving me an interview back then when i was you know doing the research a few years ago it, it was great to have somebody like you, you know, Terry Funk also spoke to me and to have people like that to give their memories and recollections is, I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful, just like I'm grateful that you agreed to do this too and come and come on this show. You're more than welcome. I can't thank you enough. I was just blown away on that book. Thank you. You were very, very nice to a dear friend of mine. Well, thank you. I I appreciate it. And he was I think I think I would agree especially after doing the book because now because people always ask me that now that I wrote this book but you know if if I wasn't sure before I did the book I'm I'm absolutely positive now in so many ways that you measure it that he would have to be the greatest I would have to say I do too I I agree with you a thousand percent well, Kevin, I, I, I say this with a lot of guests, but I'm going to say it again that we we absolutely have to do another one of these eventually and 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 get into so many more aspects of your career and, and your insights in the business because it's just fantastic talking to you. Well, uh, anytime you want me, I'm just a phone call away. Can I give a little plug here? Please, please do. My wife wrote a book. It's a Sopranos meets wrestling it's called Old School Ring Squared. You can get it on Amazon.com. And you'll be getting a book, too, soon, Ryan. Um, I know. I remember we talked about that. I'm looking forward yeah. to it in my mail. Well, here's what happened. My daughter moved, I think I told you. Yes. Off. Yeah, she moved into a brand new place. And I look like we're in a hoarder's village right here visiting her. But I'm trying to help her get stuff done. So thank you very much. I really enjoyed it, Brian. Oh, Kevin, thank you. This is this has been great. A, a pleasure and an honor. Thank you, sir. Thank you. There you have it, folks. My momentous conversation with the great Kevin Sullivan. And Kevin, once again, as I said in the interview, thank you so much for agreeing to be a part of this. And I do promise to have you back. Um, In the meantime, we also have some amazing guests to come here on Shut Up and Wrestle. I want to say that next week for the 31st episode, I'm going to be returning to the very popular um, area of former Titan Tower employees, former corporate employees. In this case, a fellow uh, magazine writer and editor who, uh, who who goes by the name of Aaron Feigenbaum. 
But in the magazines, if you were a reader of WWE magazine, Raw magazine, and so forth, you would have known him as Aaron Williams. And he will be here next week on Shut Up and Wrestle. And so many more coming up. I want to say, as we know, I've mentioned before, but Ross Hart is going to be a guest coming up. Uh, the, The historian of the legendary Hart Wrestling Dynasty. He will be here, courtesy of Tom Burke, who made that interview happen. Also, the longtime photo director, photo editor, and chief photographer of WWF and WWE, um, Tom Buchanan, is going to be coming on, another Titan employee. We've also got um, Keith Caramello, who was a graphic designer and artist for WWE, probably best known for the creation of the undisputed WWE Championship belt from that whole 2001, 2002, 2003 era. He'll be here. And I also have plans to have the longtime promoter, Sheldon Goldberg, as a guest on Shut Up and Wrestle. Excited about that. So keep listening. You can find Shut Up and Wrestle at our website, suawpod.com, or wherever you get your great podcasts every week. Apple Podcasts is the most common. There's also Spotify, Google Podcasts, uh, Podcast Addict. Podbean, so many ways that you could find Shut Up and Wrestle, so you have no excuse. Find it. And while you're at it, join the Facebook group, the Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon Facebook group. Every week, we welcome new members, and we have great old-school wrestling conversations in that group, uh, both on the topics covered on this show and really whatever old-school topics people like to bring up. So check it out and go there if you have a chance. Um, you can, of course, pick up copies of my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic on Amazon.com. There are the print versions, the, the digital versions, and the audio versions available there. The magazines that I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the granddaddy of all wrestling magazines. You can get copies of that at pwi-online.com. And Inside the Ropes magazine, which I'm going to be having the cover story on in their next issue, issue 24, which goes on sale very soon. And you can pick that up and any of their other issues at Inside the Ropes magazine. Dot com. And if you are looking for me anywhere on social media, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can find my writer page on Facebook uh, if you look up Brian Solomon Writer. And uh, if you go to any of those social media platforms, you will also find the link to my official author web page. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you of this above all else. To thine own self, be true. So long, wrestling fans. 